0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground
1: Hopefully many of you saw the email I sent out a couple of days ago. It included a short essay that John Deanhart wrote about generosity, just his own reflections, really sweet article. And Chelsea has also offered to speak to us for five minutes or so about her experience. So why don't you use the mic, Chelsea?
0: So my name is Chelsea, and um, I've been going through about a year or more long process of examining my attitude around money and giving and abundance versus scarcity. And so when this opportunity was presented i thought well this is a good another good place to explore this and um and so as i started looking at it uh over the course of my life i realized probably like many of us in this culture um generosity doesn't come easily to me um it there there always is this pressure of um I have to give something back if I receive something, and I'm looking for what I can get if I give something. Um, and there's often a, a sense of uh, fear that's in there, and for me, maybe even stronger than the fear, there's a sense of guilt, of um, uh, like necessity, obligation in in giving. And I, I grew up in a family that was very uh, involved in service where like my dad would pick up people from the street with cardboard signs and bring them home and give them jobs. And, um, my mom was always volunteering. And so I kind of naturally, uh, fell into that, but I, I did it. Um, I, I sort of interpreted it with this attitude of obligation and guilt and um, my whole adult life I've given away more than I've uh, saved as like, financially and um, and so it it just there was this attitude in there of, um, Saving money is hoarding, <laughs> and that is selfish and unspiritual. And so, um, I kind of left myself out of the generosity equation um, for quite a while. Um. So, and then I showed up at Common Ground about five or six years ago and heard the little spiel on Donna and that was really mind-blowing to me and so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take them at their word and just experiment with this. Um, No one's passing the basket around and watching to see if I put anything in it. Uh, So I didn't for quite a long time and... Uh, and then I started noticing over the years my life was starting to change. And um, one example, just small inconsequential thing, L- last week um, I was biking, and um, biking is my main form of transportation, so I don't get road rage, but I get bike rage. And um, this guy pulled right it cut right in front of me into the bike lane to get around the cars um back into the lane and and normally that would have just like set me off for the rest of the day and just I would have been like the anger would have been like coursing through my body for hours but I was so shocked to hear myself say out loud when this guy did that I went oh dear one and I just had no idea where, like, like, what is that voice? that has never been in my head. Um, and and it just seemed like, wow, okay. So that all of that cultivating of compassion and kindness and equanimity, um, showed up in that moment. And it it seemed like, um, all of those qualities that we practice are those boundless qualities of the heart seem to be related to generosity, um, because they're they're about abundance, and so so that little moment was just a small example of um of that opening and softening of my heart that has happened here, um. And and I see it in so many areas of my life. Um, so yeah, it's just it's there's uh, so many ways that this is benefiting me, and I'm just less reactive, less anxious, less angry. Um, and that is something I've been noticing and taking the time to feel gratitude for and i i also noticed like when recently when i start come i come in here and i i i cry almost every time out of joy just like looking at everybody and i don't even know half the people in the room but i'm so touched by what's happening here and uh, a few weeks ago i was reviewing my finances and i decided to start giving regularly, um, to Common Ground, uh, and in the following breath, literally, I decided to open a savings account for myself, and both of those things felt so good, um, and, and so I just, like, set up both of the recurring payments back to back, and it was like, oh, yeah, like, that's what, that's what they're talking about here, is, like, do what feels right and take care of yourself too because giving too much doesn't feel good. Um, and, and, and not giving at all doesn't feel good either. I mean, there is that period of just observing, but, but now that I can see that my life is truly changing, it's absolutely a joy to give back. And um, yeah, so I'm very grateful. For this place, thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Chelsea, for sharing. And remember, if you feel brave, and just it's just such a powerful thing to hear from people. Consider doing it for the fall course if you're going to be part of that. So, thanks to both Chelsea and uh, John who wrote the article. If you didn't get a chance, it's in the email there. You can take a look at it. So we'll have small groups later today, tonight, Um, and as hopefully you know, it's our last class and so we should be, as you maybe felt at the end, completely awakened, right? (laughs) (laughs) That experience of putting down the load, maybe some of you, hopefully everyone or most of you read the Excerpt that I sent um, with the article by Ajahn Tanisaro, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Just one paragraph or two paragraphs from that. So you focus on letting go, right? So the last um, four instructions really blossom into a letting go. And there's a, the whole thing is about letting go. But this is sort of the letting go without remainder. It's a a letting go of even the latent tendency to cling, not even uh, confused or caught by the habit to cling, the habit to grasp. So he writes, so you focus on letting go. According to the text, first there's a focus on dispassion then the focus on cessation, and finally a focus on total relinquishment. In other words, in the final stage, you let go of every kind of doing, every kind of volition, of the producer, of the consumer, of the observer, even of the perceptions and the thought fabrications that make up the path. Even the Dharma coach, the part of your mind that's telling you how to practice, like, the voice that's saying, now you let go, right? You let go of that too. But this is real important. Letting go doesn't mean you have to suppress or repress anything, right? So I've been saying, I know it won't work for everyone, but let it rip, right? That's another, like, because you might need different words or different phrases than just letting go or letting be or allowing, right? So there are different, because different phrases bring out Different ways the mind's still holding, still dependent on something, ground or whatever, becoming enlightened. When the path factors have done their job, you can let go of them as well. All this takes place right at the breath, at the point where the mind and the body meet at the breath. This is why the Buddha never has you totally drop the breath as your theme of meditation. Progress along the path comes simply from staying right here and growing more and more aware of what's going on all around right here. You develop a more all-around awareness, not only all around in the body, but also all around in the mind. Right, Everything's included. That, that was me, not Ajahn. You see through the blind spots that allowed you to consume experiences obliviously, forgetting the fact that you had to produce them. And this is a great simile. It's like watching a movie, two hours of lights flashing up on the screen, and then later seeing a documentary about how they made the movie. You realize that months, sometimes years of labor went into it, and the question becomes, was it worth it? A few brief hours of empty enjoyment, and then you forget about it, despite all the work, all the suffering that went into making it. So when you look at all your experiences in the same way, seeing all the effort that goes into their production and asking if it's worth it. But like even in that third set of instructions where we're experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, quieting the mind, stilling the mind, releasing the mind. As fabrications go, as sense experience goes, that's a pretty beautiful, simple, peaceful. But even any dependency, any ownership of that quiet, of that mind, that heart that's empty, that mind that's peaceful, right? Right? like it's stressful to own that or to need that. And we can, this is what we learn in the fourth set of four instructions is we're realizing that even when we get what we want, it's stressful. So we finally get a peaceful set. Right? But the dependency, the identification is stressful. With that piece being the one who needs a peaceful sit that's a stressful fabrication or construction of the mind, so that can be let go of. So, in a way, I mean, it's again, words aren't that useful here, but one that I found helpful in part at least is the sense of a free fall that doesn't end in hitting the ground, right? Just like a Just a a movement, but no resistance, no friction. So nature is that flow. It's a way of relating to nature, which is a movement, but without resistance, without projecting anything on or having to make anything up around nature. The story that I often tell, many of you have heard it many times, but it's just a useful story about the wish-fulfilling tree You know, about the person in the hot sun, wishing there were a big shade tree. And sure enough, a big shade tree arises, sits down, relaxes, has the thought, be nice to be hanging out here with another interesting person. And sure enough, an interesting person shows up. They're hanging out under the big shade tree, enjoying the cool, relative cool. And he imagines, well, it would be really nice to have some food and drinks. And sure enough, some food and drinks arise, show up in the scene, they're enjoying the food, drinks. The guy's getting a little suspicious. I wonder if there's a demon around here. This seems a little weird. You know, everything I imagine. Sure enough, the demon arises. <laughs> I wonder if that demon's going to eat me up. Sure enough. <laughs> the demon. This wish-fulfilling tree is a little bit like the nature of the mind. right? We live fundamentally. It can be misunderstood. So... There is this element of fabrication or construction. There is a construction project going on. And there are really hellish ways to be constructing our life, our reality, our subjective reality. And there are relatively wholesome ways to be constructing meaning. Right, And whatever the construction is, being somehow tethered, attached, identified with the constructions is stressful. And so the fourth set of instructions is realizing the mind that's not tethered to any, anything in nature. Nature is allowed to be nature, but the mind isn't holding fixed views, isn't identified, attached to nature to everything that's moving. And that's the letting go. And there's a particular formula, right? So breathing in, breathing out, sensitive to impermanence. The reality that there isn't actually any ground here. So whatever the whatever seems like what's going on, that meaning my mind's constructed, that's fluid. I'm at common ground. It's Monday night. But it has the appearance of being solid ground, what I just said. But as a subjective experience in my mind, when my mind settled in observing any construction, any willful activity, any intention, is seen as a changing process. No beginning and just one thing leading to another. That's really the nature of nature. So the Buddha sort of found out figured out from observing his own mind a particular set of keys or a particular set of steps that leads to a taste of the freedom that's available notice change notice this disenchantment that arises when the mind chooses to pay attention to change to the ephemeral insubstantial nature of thought constructions, feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of the moments. So whatever it is we're sort of tuning into, it's in motion. That's not satisfying. That leads to disenchantment and dispassion and the recognition how impersonal it all is hitting those three notes, keeping the attention on those three things, three characteristics for those who know the Buddhist maps. right? This is, when we talk about insight, when you hear people talk about insight, they're talking about seeing the changing, unsatisfying, dissatisfying, and impersonal nature in a deeper way, in an earth-shaking way. That's called insight. And some of these, one of these three rather might be stronger for you than one of the other three. Traditionally, the Buddha talks about it as impermanent. Second is dukkha, seeing the unsatisfying nature, seeing the impersonal nature, anatta. So anicca, dukkha, anatta for those who want the Pali. But it's not always in that particular order. That's often how the Buddha talked about it. But it sets up The heart, the mind, it turns away from its dependence on sense experience. So the very nature, the only mind we really know is the mind that's fixated and dependent and feels, you know, dependent, feels needy for sense experience. So there's a personal relationship to sense experience. So even when the sense experience like in the would that be the the 12th step? Yeah, 12th step, right? Releasing the mind. So you've been experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, stilling the mind, releasing the mind. Really nice place now, right? It's like the mind is empty of any kind of obvious selfing, just that open space. The mind's very retreated from kind of the normal psychic weights of worry and need and shame and, you know, the things that normally ache in our heart or we sense in our heart. It feels, it's like heaven. It's like our own subjective experience of heaven when we're in that more refined, expansive state of mind, right? It feels good. I mean, Chelsea mentioned that in her sharing a little bit. Just the expansive states that arise, not just in meditation times. When there's, expansive state of love or gratitude or self-compassion or forgiveness even can have that sort of all-embracing. And we feel lifted up. We feel liberated. This is where that 12th step, it can feel in a very subtle way like my problems are solved. Because the self doesn't seem to have very many problems. That's why it's like heaven. But there's still a sense of a somebody dependent on that space, on the absence of affliction, the absence of gross, dense, painful even experience. So the the fourth set of instructions is really uprooting the latent tendencies because it's still a setup even though it's a really nice setup it's a setup for when that changes and the mind isn't in that expansive peaceful still space anymore and then it can feel like a real fall from grace when you know somebody's not treating us the way we want to be treated and we even can have doubts when some of the more gross emotions reemerge we wonder was that even did that even happen to me you know it seems so far away we wonder like was i just faking it was that real that experience i had so a lot like when when we have more experiences of peace then we kind of go back to this work of uprooting the tendency to grasp Once we get a taste of how much space, how much freedom might be available then we really are interested in changing our relationship where we had the more than any habit there's the habit in the mind to feel dependent that sense experience is going to deliver something for me. And so it's we're really going to tra- transform that habit to realizing the mind that's not dependent, that's not attached to sense experience. And, you know, it, in different, you know, there's so many different expressions, and generally, especially in Theravada Buddhism, you're not encouraged to even talk about these glimpses of that sort of experience of freedom, but it's always surprising that freedom. Because it's not about sense experience. It's about the not clinging to sense experience. It's not a nice experience. It's the mind not clinging to whatever experience. It's realizing that mind that doesn't, that isn't tied or tethered to nature that's moving. It's not so much that it's not nature, but it's not what's in motion. It's not dependent on what's in motion. And the, the sort of root of suffering is what's in motion isn't dependable. Yet our whole existence has been built around looking for safety, In something that can't deliver safety, so that's why we're so frustrated, even when we're pretending to feel good. (laughs) You know, frustration is around the corner. I mean, we've had moments when we felt really good, right? But like I said, it's a real setup when frustration comes back in. How can that be? It's really shocking, like when we do actually access really peaceful places. Or places of expansive love, and to realize that we're not out of the woods yet. It was just what it was. It was a really nice experience. And maybe healing, emotionally healing in a very deep way, therapeutic in a very deep way. But it's not what the Buddha was pointing to. It's sort of, you know, fireworks along the way, or pleasant resting spaces along the way. So it's okay for the fourth set of instructions. And of course, insight can arise anywhere along through any of these steps. And of course, eventually the steps are designed to be quite fluid how we're working with them. But in the small groups tonight, it might be useful to talk about um, your mind, our mind's relationship to these, hitting these three notes of, impermanence, dissatisfaction, the just that really using the experience of disenchantment, not thinking of it as a problem. Like, maybe the mind's wise. Like, I, I've been sharing, you know, around food, you know, even though I have a lot of habit energy to kind of seek out delicious food, it's like, I just don't believe it as much as I used to. You know, I really, I'm noticing that, and it's such a interesting experience. Like, I watched, walked, rather, to the Birchwood, which is close to where I live, today, in the middle of the day, when I was working on the program, and uh, they often have leftover morning danishes were very inexpensive. So I picked up an old, uh, I mean, not old, it was <laughs> eight hours old, or something like that, whenever they bake them in the morning, um, I guess it was some kind of coffee cake. And, uh, you know, I just, I remember, you know, because c- they wrap it in cellophane, you kind of look and say, oh yeah, it like, looks like peaches in there and you got that nice little crumble on top and it had some real weight, you know, like, I was like oh, that's substantial. And like I was noticing that I was carrying it home had with my afternoon tea. And, it, you know, it's just like, it wasn't satisfying. I mean I knew that if, if if you had asked me will this be satisfying, I knew it wouldn't be satisfying. But it was it's like like built in to sort of treat myself if if something, you know I try to convince myself to go to the co op and get organic ice cream. <laughs> but I just just like you know, it just didn't seem satisfying. <laughs> I thought, well, a walk would be nice, even if it is just a block, (laughs) you know, and it won't be a lot of money, you know. But just that, like, really, instead of thinking of it as a problem that the coffee cake wasn't satisfying, like getting curious about dissatisfaction. And for me, uh, more than the impermanence, it's really been the unsatisfactoriness. This, I've been chewing on this since I was in high school. My mind has been fascinated by how unsatisfying things are, even in high school. Like I started to notice that achievement wasn't very satisfying. Getting a good grade, I was really into track and cross country, I was a pretty good runner in high school. you know. And just like training hard to win another race or to break my you know, get another personal best for the mile or for the half mile, like Somehow, it just like started to become really unsatisfying in junior and senior year, and uh, and like even working hard to make people like me and to be cool. I mean, I thought it was ever that cool, but <laughs> <laughs> just like fitting in, like we all tried to do in high school, right? It's like that just, just didn't seem worth the effort. And I, I've been sort of tracking this dissatisfaction or disenchantment not as some kind of depression, but as, so this is what you can talk about, one of these three things, maybe you notice your mind has been more interested in the impersonal nature, the changing nature, ephemeral nature, or the unsatisfying nature of any experience or all experience. And how that sort of sets the heart up, aligns the heart in a way to have some intuition of a completely out-of-the-box way of being, what in Buddhism we call the unconditioned. But it's really just a flavor of freedom when the mind isn't in any way being pushed around by things that are coming and going or the present moment. It's, I often say, like the Taste of these insights is it's okay. As crazy and imperfect as my life is, as my mind is, as my body is, as the world is, in a shocking way that's okay. Like my heart isn't burdened. Doesn't mean I'm not gonna work for justice or do a good job or but I'm not I'm not in opposition to anything. My heart isn't in opposition to anything. The mind understands that as a possibility. The heart in a non-contentious relationship. And not because the moment is a particular way. It's like an option at all times, this non-contention, this non-opposition. And lo and behold, it really frees us up to more skillfully participate, more fearlessly show up. And do what needs to be done in life. So that you know that's sort of the area. But of course, anything about your practice related to what we've been looking at these eight weeks this summer would be useful. Remember, you you don't have to talk all three of your minutes. You can go quiet and just reflect. And the people you're with will help you hold that silent space where you just continue to reflect. Like, do I have something I want to share that would be Good for me to share that as an act of generosity. I mean, this is another way to give back to the community is to be fearless about like, I have a mind, I have a heart, I have a practice. Why not just put it out there? And all oh, its glory and glory, <laughs> right? This is, this is how it is for me. Because it will be useful for the other people, I guarantee it, right? It's one of the true worldly Blessings is hanging out with other people who have been observing their mind and heart and learning from each other. It's like real community. It's like what's that line from the Bible when some of you can help me with this when one or more of you gather in my name, is that what it goes like? And what's where does it go from there? I can't hear you. There I am. There I am. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you'll be in the presence of the design, divine, right? And so it is the same thing when we're. Talking about our experiences as a human being in this non-judging, straightforward. This is being known. It was like this, and then this, and then this, as nature. Right? We're kind of close. We're in the vicinity of awakening and insight and something truly beautiful. That's really what we experience in these small groups. So it's really worthy of kind of bringing some respect. Sit close be in your body, give everyone their two or three minutes to share what they have to share, even if it's just silence. And then at the end, just open discussion for the last three to five minutes.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.